Brother Tim, uh, yesterday when I asked him what time I needed to be here this morning, he, he said, You've, you need to be here at 7 because I need to screen your preaching fair, what you will be preaching about before we let you in the pulpit. <laughs> and I said, well, there may be more truth to that than you know. And, um, and this afternoon, I would like to deal with the subject that is primarily for the young people that are here. I'm so thankful to see such a good contingency of young folks here. And um, following the burdens and impressions of my mind, I have really tried to pray as to whether this subject would be appropriate. It's a little bit different than my ordinary preaching fare. I have strong convictions that a preacher ought to take a text and explain that text and apply it to the Lord's people. And, uh, but this afternoon, I would like to lead you for just a few moments, and I hope I don't darken counsel or take away from anything that Brother Josh has to bring to us. But I want to speak on a very important subject for young people today, and for many of us that aren't so young. Let's talk for a few moments in a form of a Bible study, if you would, on the theme of identifying the cults this afternoon. And I do want to start by reading a couple of passages from Scripture. The first is in 1 John chapter 4, beginning in the first six verses. Now, this isn't a real spiritual subject. It's more of a study, and it's more for the sake of the young people here. But I think it's very relevant and very important in the day in which we live, because college campuses are often breeding grounds for non-Christian religion. And many of us are exposed be, through internet and, and uh, the electronic media, both the popular media and e especially the alternative forms of media, we're exposed to groups that pose to be Christian today, but who are basically uh, deviations from traditional and historic Christianity. So I want us to read from 1 John chapter 4, the first six verses. In these verses, I won't expound or exegete the passages so much this morning as use them as a jumping off point this afternoon or a launch pad for a few thoughts on how we might identify the cults. 1 John 4.1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Year of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Notice this passage addresses the importance of discernment. And discernment is 
the spiritual discipline of taking every thought and idea with which we're exposed and sifting it through the grid or the sieve of God's Word. You know, an archaeologist takes a screen with a frame around it and takes a shovel full of dirt and puts it on the screen, then shakes it. And the dirt falls through and the artifact is left on top. Well, we should screen every idea and thought through the grid of Scripture. And you've got to know the Scripture. You have to be familiar with the truth of God's Word to be able to do that. Just because somebody is articulate and well-dressed and has nice hair and is handsome or beautiful and on television does not mean that they have good intentions or that their ideas are consistent with Scripture. So just because someone is, has letters behind his or her name, also that doesn't mean that they're to be swallowed without discretion, indiscriminately. So I think it's important not to be paranoid, not to see a ghost behind every closet. We're not afraid of the world. We're not afraid of the ideas of men, but we do want to be wise because the book of Proverbs tells us that the simple believe every word, but a prudent man looks well to his going. There are people who are credulous. They're gullible. They're simple. They believe everything they hear. Don't be like that. Be prudent. That is wise. And analyze what you hear and ask yourself questions. Is this consistent with Scripture? And does it glorify God? Okay, so believe not every spirit. Don't just swallow it hook, line, and sinker, but try, test the spirits. Prove all things, says Paul in Thessalonians, and then hold fast to what is good. Here's the second passage, Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I marvel, says Paul, that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, I hear somebody that claims that an angel revealed to me something that the Bible does not contain, or God spoke to me and I want to tell you what he's told me. Though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, Paul says, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you, then that which you have received, let him be accursed. Okay, I use those two passages sort of as a jumping off point. And the reason this subject's on my mind is a few weeks ago, as we filed out of the sanctuary at Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Coastal Carolina after morning worship, we were all a bit surprised to find on every windshield in our church parking lot there was a professionally produced 34-page booklet that was stuck under the windshield wiper entitled the mystery of God, and the subtitle was Revelation chapter 10, verse 7. 
Somebody had been trying to recruit our members while we were in church. (laughs) And the responsible organization identified themselves on the pamphlet simply by a website address and gave an address of Jeffersonville, Indiana, which is just north of Louisville, Kentucky, across the line into Indiana. Well, as I began to search this group called The Message and went to their website, it became clear that they were Branhamites, which is a Pentecostal-style doomsday cult that uh, followed followed the late William Branham, who um, once said that the Battle of Armageddon would happen in 1977, and then in 1978 had to change his uh, views on that. Branham knows better now because he's now deceased. (laughs) But um, he once held joint campaigns with Jim Jones of the People's Temple. You're probably familiar with Jonestown, Guyana, and the 1978 massacre there in Jonestown. So Branham and uh, Jones once held joint campaigns together, and some speculate that Branham was the fuel to the fire of Jim Jones' strange doomsday ideas. Now, these maverick groups, I believe, pose a growing threat to God's children today. And in the age of internet and social media, of course, everyone has a platform and a voice, regardless of his or her credentials. They have a platform to promote themselves and their ideas. And history has taught us that if a message is packaged and marketed just right, any self-proclaimed expert who has Napoleon-like crowned himself king, whether you're talking about a self-styled blogger or an online influencer or a podcaster who is vying for attention, anyone today could uh, get a following, and I think it's safe to say that there are many people today who have followers across the grid of the philosophical spectrum promoting every kind of idea. A culture like ours, which is rife with information pollution, is a breeding ground for a resurgence of a number of the old cults as well as a proliferation of many more numerous cults today, and um, that's precisely what's happening. Now, by the way, we're all familiar with, you know, the Branch Davidians in Waco and the Jonestown Massacre, you know, the Jim Joe and Heaven's Gate folks in California and uh, some of those kinds of more popular cults. But Perhaps you're not aware of the fact that most university campuses have groups that pose to be Christian, which are not. And many of the major cities have groups within them in which there are self-styled leaders who appear to be Christian on the surface, but yet are, you know, have deviated far enough to where they're not even orthodox. They've even gone beyond a little heresy or here or there, and they are actually non-Christian religions. They could actually be classified as cults. Now, there are cults, of course, 
across the spectrum of every genre. There are political cults. And there are, if you please, um, you know, there are guilds and quotes or cults in every branch of culture. But what I'm concerned with today are Christian cults, ministries, quote unquote, that are really not ministries. And they appeal to the troubled and they prey on the vulnerable. And again, university campuses are fertile fields for recruiting a number of these younger folks who are lost and adrift. Perhaps they come out of broken homes, perhaps they come from troubled and abusive situations and they're looking for somebody to receive them. They're, they want a sense of belonging. And of course the cults often give them uh, a, a, an opportunity to feel like they belong to something bigger than themselves and they become sucked in and committed before they learn that there is a, really an abusive climate of mind control and behavior control and micromanagement of their lives in these kinds of institutions. So I don't mean to suggest that every person who's a part of a cult is insincere. There are a bunch of sincere people. There are very, a lot of very t good hearted people. But I do suggest that there is something sinister and nefarious often in the formation, in the leadership of these maverick organizations, and there are more than we are aware that are operative in the world around us today. Now, I do want to give a couple of disclaimers. I'm not talking about the difference between Christianity and world religions so much. We're not thinking about Buddhism or Hinduism or Islam or Confucianism, because these groups don't profess to be Christian at all. We could talk about them on another occasion perhaps, but that's not the focus this afternoon. Neither am, we, am I talking about alternative worldviews, like atheism. Now, of course, you know there is a militant atheism which is growing by leaps and bands, bounds today, and we're not so much concerned about atheism or secularism for like the big world religions of Buddhism and Islam and so forth, these do not pretend to be Christian. I'm talking about the groups this morning primarily that pretend to be Christian but are, if you please, um, are um, exceptions to what we would claim to be traditional, generally accepted, historically Orthodox Christian faith and life. That's what we're talking about this afternoon. And by, let me say this, I'm not even focusing so much on various Christian denominations. There are groups around, in fact, I was tickled that when our church had these uh, pamphlets on the windshield, I was tickled to know we weren't alone. The Methodist street down the church also had pamphlets on its windshield. And I was glad that they didn't just pick us out. But you know, it was kind of alarming to think that uh, they're trying to recruit Christians. Now, if they're posing to be Christians, then why are they trying to recruit other Christians? And uh, what are they doing out on a Sunday? And the reason is because many of these cults are Sabbatarian, that is, they meet on Saturdays, because many of them borrow from the old Jewish uh, format of life and worship. And uh, the reason I'm, one reason I'm very interested in this is I've had some personal experience in my life with folks who've been taken in 
by these groups, and I think that it's important for us to just be aware and always speak the truth in love, and I certainly am not trying to point fingers or to talk about how evil these people are, but I do believe that there's something in, uh, that is nefarious and infernal about the movement that is seeking to deceive people and claim that, G that the church and Christianity, as it has historically been laid out in Scripture and in history, is... Um, is, is, is what is called a, um, a counterfeit church. Certainly, my friends, the cults are counterfeit in their, Christian, in their claim to be Christian. So our focus this morning or this afternoon is these groups that profess to be Christian yet substantially deviate from its historical roots and teachings. Let me give you a definition. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, a cult or... or Cultism is a devotion to a particular person, and that's important, a particular person or teaching as paid by a body of professed adherents. Now think about that. It's devotion, I'm committed entirely to a particular person or idea that by a body of adherents. And of course, according to that definition, from the Oxford English Dictionary, the idea of a cult is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not a bad word. If I were to say that this is a cult, for you might know that the term cult is the root word, etymologically speaking, of the words culture and cultivate. Now, a farmer does what to a crop? He cultivates a crop. And you and I live in culture. And the establishment of culture is precisely what God meant in the creation mandate when he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, take dominion over the earth and subdue it. Here's, here's an important distinction. Creation is what God made. But culture is what man trains and refines and manages. God made creation and then he told Adam to be my deputy, be my vice regent, take dominion over the earth. You govern it, Adam. And in fact, when Adam named the animals, God didn't say, no, I th don't think that's a good name. What about this? God, whatever Adam called it, that was the name thereof. Look at how much authority God has given Adam. He's given him the authority to manage the world that he made. And, of course, Adam dropped the ball. He fumbled big time, didn't he? Right. <laughs> but um, the word culture speaks of man's training and management and cultivation of what God has made. And every part of the world that has been cultivated, whether you're talking about a city or a political system or a farm or an economy, is an expression of culture. It's a cult, a subculture. And that which hasn't been cultivated, we call a jungle or a desert or a wilderness. <laughs> Further, Christianity itself was originally considered to be a cult of Judaism. Or a sect is the word used in the Acts of the Apostles. You know, in Acts chapters 24, verse 5, and 28, verse 22, it calls Christianity a sect. Now, it also called 
the Sadducees and the Pharisees sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Judaism. So Christianity was originally considered to be a cult of the Jewish religion. Does it meet the definition of the cult that I cited just a moment ago? Devotion to a person? Christianity, is it devoted to a person? Who? Jesus Christ, right? Or, and teaching uh, by a body of adherents. Christianity was originally a group of Jewish people that said the Messiah has come and we're going to follow him. Now, is Christianity a cult in the bad... Is, is the word cult a bad term? No, uh, it's not because every group... Of that adhere to some idea is a culture, an expression of culture in a certain sense. But when we're talking about cults, here's the specific nuance in which we're discussing this subject this afternoon. A cult is a deviation from historical orthodoxy. It's a divergence from the original pattern at an essential level, at an essential level. And in the first century, when the Christians were preaching the resurrection of Christ, Gnosticism rose. And in fact, 1 John chapter 4, where I read, believe not every spirit, and he says that those that do not believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that's the spirit of Antichrist, those were the Gnostics. And the Gnostics, led by a fellow named Marcion and... uh, later in the third century by a man named Arius, were were groups that denied the deity of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that you find from these cults is they use Christian terminology, but they don't mean the same thing by it that you and I do. I love the way Elder Sonny Powell used to put it. They use the same vocabulary, but a different dictionary. Now, let's give you a few examples of some of these uh, cults in the last century, century and a half. Of course, perhaps you've heard of Christian Science, started by Mary Baker Eddy, its founder. Theosophy by Helena Blavatsky, a Russian lady. The Unity School of Christianity by Mr. and Mrs. Fillmore. Jehovah's Witnesses begun by Charles Russell and later Judge Rutherford. The Science of Mind by Ernest Holmes. Mormonism by Joseph Smith. The Unification Church by Sun Myung Moon. The Worldwide Church of God by Herbert W. Armstrong and later his son Garner Ted Armstrong. Heaven's Gate, the Branch Davidians. Some of the newer ones are the Sacred Name Movement, the Yao Hushua Group. The churches, our churches in the Philippines have been really troubled by these Sacred Name Groups that are saying that you have to use one name. You have to call Jesus Yeshua or Yao Hushua. And if you use the wrong name, you're actually inviting a demon spirit in. Now, they're teaching these things. And... Uh, You can't truly go to heaven and be saved unless you use the right name. And I try to tell our folks, salvation's by grace anyway. A person may be, you know, don't forget that salvation's by grace. And so, uh, by the way, most of these names are Yiddish. They're not actually ancient Hebrew anyway. They're a progressive form of the Hebrew language. They're not Aramaic or Hebrew at all. They're Yiddish. But the point that I make is that that, the sacred name movement, which is growing in momentum, and the Hebrew roots movement, 
And by the way, you may know that as Christianity, as brand name Christianity has given way to the generic brands, you know, just like the brands on the grocery store shelves have given away to, to the, you know, brand, the generic brands, well, the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Baptists and the, you know, the, uh, and the Episcopalians and so forth has given away to, you know, family life centers. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm not poking fun at anybody, but I'm saying that there has been a movement to get away from denominationalism and more toward this uh, more generic, you know, well, as more and more groups have broken away and started their own churches and they've left the controls of larger groups and now the pastor is, a, you know, his own leader and has his own board of directors and so forth. May I say the Hebrew Roots Movement is growing by leaps and bounds in these non-denominational uh, churches, quote-unquote, the Hebrew Roots Movement, in which there is a real interest in going back to the Jewish feasts and festivals. And in fact, some of these groups, you know, actually hold festivals. They, they observe the Jewish feasts and festivals during, at the appropriate time of the year, and there's a strong flavor of, uh, from these groups in which they borrow heavily from ancient Jewish religions with the dietary laws and the feast days of these ancient Hebrew roots groups. So, so what I'm saying is, uh, there is there are many lesser known and more local groups than those that I've mentioned, and some have a strong flavor of mysticism. The New Age movement is very strong in a number of them, like theosophy and Christian science, and, you know, the science of mind and so forth. Transcendental meditation, L. Ron Hubbard, and even though they don't claim to be Christian really yet, there are religious groups. I'm just saying that it's important to identify some of these groups. There are a few common traits they share, and this is where I will focus for just a few moments as we close this afternoon. First of all, each of these groups share these things in common. Number one, they have an unorthodox bibliology, an unorthodox doctrine of Scripture. Every one of them denies the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, the group actually generally begins with a direct revelation to from God or an angel to the leader who now becomes the prophet or the point of divine contact. You know, our definition a moment ago said a cult is a devotion to a particular person. And it's interesting how many of these folks are strong, charismatic leaders. They are very gifted. They're, they're very polished. There's something attractive about them. They're either very gifted or they're very dominant in their personality. I've known some of these folks that were actually mean. <laughs> and, you know, they, they told people what to do. And, and most people who want to do right are glad for somebody to tell them what to do. They're, you know, I'm sort of a rebel. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. <laughs> I, I don't want anybody infringing on my freedom, especially some, you know, government official somewhere. Somebody tells me I can't do something. I'm going to say, who are you to, you know, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. <laughs> 
And uh, here I take my stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. And that's my, my tendency. But, you know, there are some people who really want to do right, and they're glad if they know what the boundaries are and where I can, and that's what these groups provide. Many of them are strongly legalistic. The leader claims to have absolute plenipotentiary authority. And because this leader is a direct link to God, in other words, God spoke to them and gave them this revelation, then we need to listen to them. Suddenly, there's a presumption that the leader has apostolic authority. Like this person speaks with authority. Whatever they say goes. And most of them have a form of government which uh, has the CEO, the leader, and then the board of directors, you know, the leadership team. And uh, they claim they, they, they want complete trust. Now, by the way, we were just in the book of Acts this morning. And wh when I mentioned that the first act action of the early church was a business meeting, Acts 1, verses 12, and then into the chapter when they chose somebody to replace Judas Iscariot. Have you noticed that the form of government practiced there is not top-down, but it's congregational? Amen. Choose you out. That's the same in Acts 6. Choose you out among you seven men. It was the congregation that voted. The apostles and elders let the congregation choose Amen. somebody to who met the criteria as an apostle. And um, I believe that it's becoming increasingly popular in other churches today for there to be a board of directors kind of government, you know, in which the person in charge has a board around him and they make the rules and they enforce the rules. And you see that formation in the, uh, you see that in the, uh, it's really a Presbyterian form of government. It's also, you see it also in an Episcopal kind of government. It's also a papal form of government in which you've got the Pope and then you've got the College of Cardinals and then you've got your, you know, your uh, priests and so forth over the local parishes. But the point is the biblical form of government is that the pastor is a leader as far as he tells people the word of God, but the congregation is supposed to make the decisions. Okay. Uh, but uh, I don't want to get too far down the line here, but the point that I make is when leadership is unaccountable, when they say, trust me, I'm always wanting to say, trust you, why? <laughs> Are, aren't you a sinner? Well, then let's put three sinners together and trust the leadership team. You know, why should I trust three any more than trust one? Uh, so, so it's not... The whole idea of, a, now I don't, I'm not saying that every group that has this format is a cult, but I'm saying that every cult has an idea of an unac unaccountable leadership, Amen. whether it's one person or a group of people that uh, enforce the rules and claim to have absolute authority and demand total compliance without any question. We're not, you're, you're not to question us. You're not to say anything. That, my friends, is a recipe for disaster. That's right. Okay? That's where a cult starts. And it all starts with this denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. I believe God's Word is sufficient. Amen. It tells us everything we need to know and believe. And if somebody claims to have 
a direct revelation from God, caution lights usually go off in my mind. Somebody says, God told me, I, I, I hear a siren. I could, I could uh, if, I, if it would wake you up, and you're doing a good job, but if, I could illustrate it to you this afternoon. Lori says no. <laughs> my wife says no. But uh, anyway, it reminds me of the story Charles Spurgeon, a young man came to him one time and said, Mr. Spurgeon, the Lord told me I'm supposed to preach in your pulpit next Sunday. <laughs> God told me. Spurgeon said, well, that's funny. I was just talking to him, and he didn't say a word to me about it. <laughs> See, the claim of direct revelation, that's the problem with it. You can't validate it. You can't verify it. You can't check it or challenge it. Now, I do believe God speaks to people, from, but he never gives new truth. He never reveals something that's not already in Scripture to somebody, okay? Every group, every cult has this in common. They claim to need additional literature or teachings from the founder apart from the Bible in order to understand the truth of God. Okay, you can mark it down if they say, now you say, well, you have additional, but I don't claim it to be inspired. You have books, you sell books, you promote books and literature, but we don't claim that they are authoritative. We say check even those by the scriptures, right? Every human writing is subject to error. Another feature of the cults is they not only have an unorthodox bibliology, but they have an unorthodox theology proper or doctrine of God. They almost always deny the doctrine of the Trinity. Most of these cults are Unitarians. They believe, in fact, the, the, the idea is monism. They, they are monists. They believe God is a unit. You say, well, don't you believe God's a unit? No, I believe God's a unity. You say, what about the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God is one Lord. It doesn't mean that he is a unit. It means that, he is uni- that he's unified. It means there's only one God, and every other pretend God is an idol. Okay, there's one true and living God, but God is Trinitarian. And the doctrine of the Trinity, my beloved, is a test of historical orthodoxy. You say, well, I don't understand it, Brother Mike. Well, join the club. <laughs> I don't understand it either. But I believe, and the Bible is so clear. In fact, the first chapter of the Bible says, let us make man. And who is the us? Who's the us? Let us make man in our own image. God is having a conversation with himself. And may I suggest, dear friends, that if you take away the doctrine of the Trinity, the tripersonal nature of God, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Three divine persons within the unity of one God. That doesn't mean there are three gods. It means there's one God in three distinct persons. But this, these three divine persons are one in mind, one in attribute, one in power, one in glory, one in purpose. And if you take away the doctrine of the Trinity, then how can Jesus be God? Because if, if God is not tripersonal, We claim Jesus is divine. He's not just a demigod or a sub-god, but he is God of very God. He's truly God and truly man simultaneously. So here are some doctrinal tests. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. You find somebody that does not teach the Trinity or the deity of Christ. My beloved, that's, that's a caution flag. Okay? 
So every cult denies the sufficiency of Scripture, the doctrine of God, and the doctrine of Christ. And everyone has an unorthodox soteriology or doctrine of salvation. Most teach a form of legalistic salvation, or if you please, salvation by works. They borrow that from Judaism, from the law. They say very little about the cross. You seldom hear anything about substitutionary atonement. And it's because, my friends, they deny the doctrine of the Trinity that they have no understanding of the combined operation of the three divine persons in your salvation. You see, I believe God the Father chose a people, God the Son died for that people, and God the Holy Spirit calls exactly that people. Amen. The doctrine of the Trinity plays hand in hand with salvation by grace alone. There's also a strange fixation of these groups on eschatology. Most of them don't say anything about the glorious return of Jesus Christ to conquer every foe and to take his people home to eternal bliss and to judge the wicked. What they do talk about is a new system that's coming in which the whole world will be paradise. By the way, the whole world wasn't even originally paradise. God carved out a little space in the Garden of Eden to make paradise, to make a garden. But the whole world was, was uh, the whole world, it wasn't infiltrated with sin, and it is now. But these groups claim that you can have eternal felicity in paradise on this earth if you're part of our group and you live just right. I'm telling you, salvation's of the Lord. It's by His grace. So here are three areas by which you and I can identify the cults. Unaccountable leadership, they, be, they believe in absolute authority of the leaders because the scriptures are not the final rule. We need additional literature to truly know the truth. So you need this plus the Book of Mormon, this plus the Watchtower magazine, this plus the writings of Mary Baker Eddy, this plus the teachings of William Branham, or whatever. They deny the sufficiency of they deny the sufficiency of Scripture, the doctrine of God and of Christ, and the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. Those are three ways you can identify. I'll close with this. Matthew 24, verse 4. Jesus says, now this is a different sermon than I usually try to preach. I like to take a passage and explain it. So I've tried to give you some, but I think it's important for young people. There's so many young people here today, and I wanted Brother Tim... You should have met with me at 7 this morning to screen this sermon. You know, I've, I've always thought, you know, if I have a preacher come in, I sure don't want him going off the rails and preaching something that might. And I don't want to offend anybody here today, but I do want to equip you. And I want to speak plainly because, so you know what's going on. Here's a passage, Matthew 24, 4. Jesus says, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And shall deceive many, and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet, for nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There shall be fa famines and pestilences, and er earthquakes in divers places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows, and they shall deliver you up to the, be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then many shall be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise, and shall deceive many. 
and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. In a day like ours, my in a society like ours, Brother Josh, may we be wise and uh, look to the scriptures and test everything we hear by the word of God. Thank you for your patience and good attention.